Thank you, Kristen. And everyone else, thank you. I, um, friends, we're continuing tonight in Ezra and Nehemiah. Of course, we'll be in Nehemiah. If you'd like to grab a paper, there are some on the back pew and then right up here, so don't be afraid to do that if you'd like. And it may seem odd right here so close to Christmas to continue through Ezra and Nehemiah, but um, as we know, every passage in the Bible is a Christmas story in one sense because everything in the Bible is either looking toward the coming of Jesus as, as our solution or is reflecting back on the coming and the, and the work of Jesus as our solution, how he solved our most, um, our most deep, our deepest problems. And so tonight we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10, chapters 10 through 13, as we talk about how Reformation is never finished. Reformation is always going on in our hearts because we are not yet fully with Jesus. We're not yet fully like Jesus. And so we need to be made more and more like Him. Um, Semper reformanda, always reforming, always returning to Jesus is, uh, is what we need to do. So in the first little paragraph up top, uh, I'm, there's just a little bit of a summary of what we're going to learn tonight. And it is this. That um, in this scene, in these chapters, between chapters 10 and 13, there's a, there's a meeting of, of the people of Israel. And they renew their covenant before God. In other words, the covenant that they had left. They had gotten far away from who God wanted them to be. And that's why God sent them into exile. And now that they're on the other side of exile, they're coming back to the Lord. And they're saying, Lord, we repent. We recognize we were wrong. We want to renew our covenant with you. Your covenant with, with us, rather. The people promised to again follow the Lord like they once did. So the city of Jerusalem, the city is repopulated in order to obey the Lord properly. And worship resumes through the Levites. Of course, the Levites are like the, the priests. They are the group that God has set aside to take care of the temple and to offer proper worship to God. Joy returns to uh, returns to Jerusalem, and again, the Word of God corrects the people as chapter 13 opens. However, there's some evidence that begins to surface that no matter how hard we try, the work of sanctification, of being more and more like God, of being more and more like Jesus, that work is never done. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 10 and read for a little bit. We're going to skip kind of this first, uh, this first little section. It's uh, giving the names of the people who, um, who were there. And if you look down at verse 28, it begins this way. Nehemiah 10, 28. The rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the, the gatekeepers and singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands... To, uh, to, the, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments that the Lord our God and the rules and His statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or to take their daughters for our sons, 
And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of, of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. So you all kind of get the picture. As the chapter opens, the people are coming back to God and they're saying, all the things that you gave Moses that our people were supposed to do and that we failed to do, God, we're sorry, we're going to return and we're going to do the best we can to do what we're supposed to do and to be who we're supposed to be. So says this on our paper. The people, having been corrected by the word, they seek to make their return to God official by re-upping on the covenant between God and His people. So if you look in Deuteronomy 29 there, on the, uh, on the, little, um, on the sermon guide, it says this. Deuteronomy 29 says, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into a sworn covenant with the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that He may establish you today as His people, and that He may be your God as He promised you, and as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here. With us today. And also in Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says this See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you to go, to go after other gods that you have not known. So this was the original covenant that God entered into with the people of, of Moses. A couple of things we need to note here. It sounds like what God is saying is that if you obey me, then you can be my people. But if you disobey me, you will not be my people. That's, that's close. Here's the difference. God is setting before them rules about how life can go well and how God will bless them. But God is not removing his hand from them as to make them God's people. In other words, God has shown time and time again that no matter how unfaithful the people are, God is still going to be faithful to draw them back and to be a good God to them. And so, friends, the reality is this. As we, as we look to our situation now in the New Testament, we are New Testament believers. God doesn't save us based on how well we follow His rules. And God doesn't send us away from Himself based on how well we follow His rules. God saves us based on His character and His goodness. And even when we are faithless, God is still holding on to us. Now, it's also true that when God does save us, He produces a heart in us that has new desires. And we desire to follow God. Clearly that's the case. Clearly we should obey God. But the reality is we're not saved based on our goodness. And so that would be a wrong conclusion to draw from the covenant. God is setting up a covenant and he's basically saying, this is how you will show your love back to me. This is how you should live and life will go well for you if you do. 
So it's basically a recommitment to do the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses. Um, But the people, of course, they highlight certain parts of it due to their own situation. Look look at, um, at chapter 10, verse 30. It says this. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. In other words, to people who are not from the people of God. Or take their daughters for our sons. Of course, um, what's going on here is that God has commanded them not to intermarry with people who don't follow God. With people who don't follow Yahweh. He says, don't marry those people because their gods may lead you astray. That's what God tells them in other parts of the Old Testament. Um, and so, they're recommitting to do this. They're saying, we, God, we will be sure only to marry the people who follow Yahweh, who follow God. Okay? So they're re-upping that promise. Then in verse 31, chapter 10, verse 31, they re-up the promise about the Sabbath. They say, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on the holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and, and the exaction of every debt. In other words, what they're saying is, God set up certain rules so that the people of Israel can show the rest of the world who they follow. They had to be different, right? They had to live in a different way so that they can can be known as, oh yeah, those are the people who follow Yahweh because they do these things. They're, They're markers. And so one of the things that God asked the Israelites or commanded them not to do is to work and to do certain things on the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to express to God... We're dependent on you. We're not going to work seven days. Other people may think that you can make more money and better provide for yourself if you work for seven days, but we're going to take one day and not do that to to show the rest of the world that our God takes care of us. So that is a, this was, of course, long before the five-day work week that that uh, many of us know. So they say we'll keep the we'll keep the Sabbath, and then there's a tithing promise. It says this beginning of verse 32. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread and for the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the the new moons and the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people uh, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house for our God. And he talks about a number of different offerings. And so the people commit to do these offerings and to do these tithes because they recognize they had gotten far away from it. They had not been doing what God had asked them to do. And then, lastly, there's a promise of right worship in, in verse 39. Chapter 10, verse 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring... Uh, the contribution of grain, wine, and oil into the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. In other words, they're promising to offer right worship to God again because they had uh, strayed from that. So these these four things, and I don't know why it says one, two, two, three there, but I guess my formatting and my word processor got messed up a little bit. But these four things um, are intended to be examples of, of what they are committed to do. These will be important in a couple of chapters. We're going to come back to those, and you'll see why 
that will be important. In Nehemiah chapter 11, though, there has to be some repopulation that happens. In other words, the city, the walls are up, the gates are up, but uh, not all as well. Look at chapter 11, uh, Nehemiah 11, first couple of verses. Now, the leaders of all the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of the ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then, of course, it goes through a bunch of names that I can't pronounce of all the people who chose to come back to the city. That's basically what Nehemiah chapter 11 talks about. So basically, why did people have to be in the city? They had to be in the city to be a witness for the other nations, to show that their God is who he says he is, and to offer right worship. Also, just for some practical safety reasons. People have to be inside the city to make sure that everything goes well. Um, There are certain of the sons of Judah and Benjamin. It says this in verse 4. And in Jerusalem lived certain certain ones of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, and it lists them. Here's why this is important. Again, it's a remnant. It's a leftover piece. You know that Judah and Benjamin are just two of the tribes of the original twelve? You know the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split because of their disobedience? And the northern kingdom, they both were evil. They both raised up evil kings, but the northern kingdom was like way off the rails. They had a lot more evil kings than the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is Judah and Benjamin. Okay, And it's interesting here that the city is being repopulated out of those two tribes, the two tribes that were less evil. And so it's, it's just a picture of how God was always, no matter how evil the kings got, no matter how evil the people got and how wayward they went, there's always a remnant. There's always a leftover piece that God is, is preserving. There's always a true people of God that he will make sure um, demonstrates who God is. And then we go to Nehemiah chapter 12. Worship and joy are restored. Um, let's see. Let's read a couple of verses, beginning in verse 1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. Um, let's see. And then, of course, in, in verse 8, and it lists the Levites. So it, it begins in verse 1 with the priests and the Levites. Verse 8, it lists some more Levites. Here's basically the, uh, the point. The account of those priests and Levites who returned here is to remind us that proper worship was conducted by the officials consistently during a very difficult time. It says, these are the priests and Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. Here's why this is important. Those who returned with Zerubbabel and Jeshua had been there about a hundred years before Nehemiah arrived. If you look way back in the beginning of Ezra, way back in the beginning of Ezra, it's Zerubbabel, it's Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. These are the men who returned. They were priests who came with them. And so all the way from the beginning of Ezra when all this stuff happens until here we are now, the priests had been in the temple doing what they were supposed to be doing no matter how tough things got. 
In other words, right worship of God was so important that there were people who were willing to endure and to press on through all of the hardships. that they Remember all the things that happened? All of the people trying to attack them? All of the people trying to distract them? All the threats that were made against the lives of the people who were there? All the while this is going on, the priest and the Levites are quietly in the background offering right worship to God. Uh, They were faithful to do the work as commanded, it says in chapter 12, verse 24. And they did the work, chapter 12, verse 26, they did the work until the present day. So, faithful. They were faithful. They were faithful to worship God. If you look in verse 27, chapter 12, verse 27, says this. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals and harps and, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together with the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, uh, <laughs> also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Osmaveth, For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So they're dedicating the wall. Some worship breaks out. Um, All seems right if you look at verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south and one, uh, one went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And after them went Hashiah and half of the leaders of Judah. In other words, so he sets up these choirs to, to praise God. This, this time of gladness breaks out because they're dedicating the city, as it were. They're dedicating the walls. It, it's almost like whenever those, these big uh, boats, these big uh, naval ships roll off the, the docks in, in Norfolk, Virginia or whatever, when, out of the, the, the shipyards, and then somebody comes and christens. Uh, christens the um, the side of that boat. This is almost like what's happening here. They're dedicating it into service to to God. The the wall has been fixed. The gates have been fixed. So these uh, God gets His praise in verse 27. Choirs form. If you go to verse 43, it says this. And they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far. Away, So, this is a good, good scene. And of course, uh, the temple begins to operate. It talks about this between verses 44 through 47. Basically, here's the point. Everything, it's almost like the story should just end right here. And it should say something like, and they all lived happily ever after. Right? The wall is fixed. The people are back in the city. The gates are up. Everything is safe. The temple is operating. God is being worshipped. And everyone is praising God. It's almost as if the book should end right there. But Nehemiah chapter 13, the last chapter in the book, is a chapter about how the people of God are fickle. The people of God are wayward. Even after another great movement of God there's still a need for reformation. And friends, this is a picture of our hearts. 
We always have to be standing guard at the gate of our heart because we are wayward. We're tempted to to do things that don't honor God. We're tempted to to stray from Him. I feel this deeply myself. I was just meeting with with a young man in our church this this week, and I just said, listen, I would love for us to just continue to meet and and for us to grab a burger every now and then or, or, uh, or meet up and talk with one another because I know that on Sunday morning I'm up here and I wear the suit and everything, but I'm a sinner too, and we need to be encouraging one another to keep one another following after Jesus very hard because we're fallible. Our hearts are easily led astray, and we better keep a watch on that. Got to stand guard at the gates of our hearts. That's what Nehemiah 13 is about. It begins almost like everything's going to be just fine because look what it says. Chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. Oh, wow, this looks like it's going to be good because Pastor Greg has always told us that whenever the people return to the Word of God, good things happen, right? That's been the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Whenever the people come to the Word of God, there's like a renewal that takes place. And that is what happens here, but it's not the end of the story. And it was found uh, written... And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. So as soon as the people heard the law, okay, here's the good part. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. In other words... They again come to the, to, the, to the Bible. They come to the Word of God, and they see how it tells them that they've been doing something wrong. And so they fix the problem. That's simple enough, right? We come to the Bible. The Bible says, hey, you need to make this change. They're like, okay, we'll, we'll make this change. It seems like, again, all is right. But if you keep going, look what happens in verse 4. Now, after this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers... Of the house of our God, and who was who was related to Tobiah. Y'all remember Tobiah, right? Tobiah is the guy that every time his name comes up in Nehemiah, the music changes, right? It turns ominous, right? Seems like everything's going good, but then you hear Tobiah's name dropped, and it's like dun dun dun. <laughs> something like that. And he was this this priest, apparently, this priest who you gotta trust the priest, right? It must be a good guy. But this priest was related to Tobiah. I wonder how that happened. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. So down in the temple, he takes this room, this priest, down in the temple, the priest takes this room that's supposed to be meant for the offering, supposed to be meant for the worship of God, and he turns it into like the studio apartment for old Tobiah. The man who is like public enemy number one. I mean, Tobiah is a guy who's like making threats. Tobiah is a guy who's getting ready to round some people up and round up a posse and try to break into Jerusalem and give Nehemiah all kinds of trouble. So what are they doing taking public enemy number one and setting him up down in the temple? This doesn't seem good. They prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of grain. Wine and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites. Look at verse 6. 
Nehemiah speaking now. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the, in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out. He, <laughs> he evicts him on the spot. He throws all of the furniture out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. In other words, what's happening is a little bit of rebellion has crept in um, while Nehemiah was away. There's a principle here. There's a, there's a, it's a leadership principle, I guess we could say. Lack of leadership leads to waywardness of the people. That's what Nehemiah seems to be saying. He's like, remember another time in the history of the Bible when this happens? When the people start to melt their rings and melt all their gold and create a golden calf while Moses was where? Away. Up on the mountain. In other words, this shows that we need not necessarily to be led by, by a pastor, although I think the Bible does prescribe that. In the New Testament, it says there need to be deacons and deacons and elders in, in the churches. But the reality is the moment that the people lose sight of the leadership of God, the moment that God no longer leads us, is the moment that we're led into thinking that stuff like setting up Tobiah down in the basement of the church sounds like a pretty good idea. Maybe he'll help us make the rent or something like that. Certain things start to make sense that ought not to make sense when we lose leadership, when we lose a vision of the leadership of God. When God stops to lead us, we start to do foolish, foolish things. But in a clear message, there's some more we need to get to. The author of Nehemiah shows us exactly how the people rebelled. Look at, look at verses 10 and 11. Chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> Nehemiah, of course, again talking, he says this. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. In other words, here's a, a broken promise of worship. Remember on the front of the page there was a, a promise that they would worship God, tithe, keep the Sabbath, and marry the appropriate people? Well, now all of these things are being undone. So I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites had to leave the city and go out into the field so that they could take care of themselves. Right worship is not being done. Look at uh, verse 12. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In other words, oh, I'm sorry, go back to verse 11. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought in the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. So they had even broken the promise of the tithe. Nehemiah, as a leader, had to set that straight. Then look at uh, verse 23. Chapter 13, verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children, listen to this, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language 
of each people. In other words, they had so messed up and had spent so much time while Nehemiah was away marrying into these foreign people who serve other gods that the kids, like the children, don't even speak the language of the people anymore. In other words, they had gone so far already. They're wandering. They're wandering far from God and from the promises that they had just made in chapter 10 and 11 and 12. And then if you look here, um, oh yeah, verse 15, apparently I missed one there. Chapter 13, verse 15, it says this. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. In other words, out here working on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and other kinds of loaves. 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 Which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. In other words, the leader had to set things straight. You would, you would imagine, wouldn't you? You would imagine that as they're disobeying God, they would remember all the blood. They would like look up and see the wall. And remember all the blood and sweat and tears that went into laying those bricks. Every brick they had to lay was a brick that God allowed to be torn down when they disobeyed the last time. You would imagine that they would have remembered. But friends, this is a picture of our hearts. This is why I think that it's appropriate for us to confess what I try to keep before us, that we are the worst sinners that we know. We are, as the song says, prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We need to remember this about ourselves so that we can hold fast to Jesus, so that we can keep our way pure, and so we don't and so that we don't make the mistakes of Israel. After seeing God move so mightily and then wandering so far from God so quickly. So, here's the application. By the way, if you'd like to read in, in uh, chapter 13, verses 28 through 31, it does end on a happy note. It ends with Nehemiah basically saying, I cleaned up the mess. I set the bones straight again. You can, uh, you can read that in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 28 through 31. It shows that even as skilled of a leader as Nehemiah is, he can't change hearts. Still depend on Yahweh to do that. Still depend on God to change hearts. Um, but the application is this. Reformation is never finished. Genesis 3 has a totalizing effect. Just like that, as we spoke about this morning, the kudzu, right? It runs and then it roots. And then it runs and then it roots. And there's no part of our body, no part of our mind, no part of our spirit or our will that is unaffected. If you give it an inch, it will take a mile. So we have to remember our fallenness. We shouldn't be surprised when we find something in ourselves that needs fixing. We need to be quick to repent, quick to forgive. Why? Because God's glory is the most important thing. And here's one last word. If God would punish even His chosen people, Israel, with exile, 
He's not going to spare us either. Because He will purify His people and He will get His glory. So we have to be always reforming, always returning, always waking up every morning confessing to God, God, my heart is a wayward heart. And if you don't take me by the hand today, I'm probably going to wander like some dumb old sheep. So God, hold me fast. I think that's enough for us to pray tonight. Uh, Will we be able to have a time of response? Okay. I'm going to pray. Miss Dawn is going to come forward. And I would just ask you in the moments uh, that she plays just to reflect on the Word of God. If there's a way that I could minister to you tonight, if you'd like for me to pray with you or if you have a concern that... Uh, or, or just a question, anything about anything I've said, I would love to, to be able to, uh, to meet you there. And, um, but right now, we're going to respond to the Lord and just reflect on the Word of God. Let's, uh, let's do that.